Father God, we just uh, praise you this morning for this glorious day. Uh, Father, it's just so um, great to be uh, just in your presence, to be in the fellowship of believers, and to be in the joy and this great privilege to have to be able to share uh, time and study and um, discussion of your word. Father, we thank you so much for Father what your your spirit has given us and just an understanding even as we even share this. But uh, most of all, we are, are just. Um, Humbled by Father, just your your grace and your mercy to us that just guides us in uh, this life. And so often, Father, we just need uh, your Spirit's uh, guidance. And as even in today, as we consider, Father, uh, a topic that is uh, just so uh, deep within Scripture as it relates to um, civil authorities, Father, your sovereign uh, working through all of this is uh, Father. We just look forward to being able to glean from it today and as we've guided in our uh, discussion. So we just commit this time to you. We pray your spirit will lead in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, George. Well, if you want to open up your Bibles uh, to, if you're already there, to 1 Peter chapter 2. And one of the questions that we had started off in your discussions was the, the simple first question is, is... Is your relationship as a believer to civil government, is it important? And how did you answer that in your, in, in your groups there? Question one there. Is your relationship as a believer to civil government an important matter? Two thoughts. Yeah, in one of the, as we go back to this objective, you know, as you look at our, we as believers, is that what we would all contemplate is certainly those that are in authority over us. And the more you think about that, there is a significant, I mean, it, it goes into multiple, multiple layers. And giving honor to those in itself, and I would think that within that structure of authority, that certainly whether it is at a local level, whether that is within an organization through work or simply within a, a government, whether it's a local government or a state government or even a federal government, is that this responsibility that we have as believers to that is critically important. And as we go through this, some of my, I have primarily two ways I want to break the, down this study of the sections that I'm going to be teaching on, which is uh, chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. I'd like to read that those verses with you, and I've got them up here. And it says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. We title this section the submission to our civil responsibilities in there. And I'm going to break it down in hopeful to get at least through verse 14 today. We'll see how that goes. But we want to start with, and there's, I would say, out of the, the verses that, these five verses that we're looking at, that the key verse that I want to keep coming back to is verse 15. Okay? And I'm going to 
relate that to what Mark taught last week, if you just go back with me to the verses that Mark covered, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And I'll read these to you. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when you speak against you, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Take verse 12 and now read that verse and see the commonality in relationship with verse 15. You see that? For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. It is literally your conduct itself which is going to, and we'll break this down in further, which will silence. And what does that represent? But it's a direct relationship and we can't um, separate those two. There's three things that I'd like to cover today as far as key, key parts. One is to look at the, the topic of submission. In fact, I, I can't just cover it today. And Mark, with permission, I'm going to expand on that next week if I could because I believe that once I start this thing on submission, you've got to carry it forward because that is going to be a common link. In, in fact, as that was one of your questions when you looked at this commonality that we see above submission in this call, it starts off immediately in the verses starting in 18, where you say that again, there is to be submissive. So it's, it's gonna, we're going to see this for the next several weeks going forward. And this issue itself, submission, this one word is the word, all of that's the word. In all these towns, in all these situations, in all these fights and experiences. It is. I, I totally concur on that. In fact, that's why I'm asking for permission to keep emphasizing and spending more time on this. Today, in my objective, I would like to at least get us into the text and touch on submit as my key red word at the top here, which is key for this passage. But to embellish a little bit more about some of the foundational principles, in other words, like what is true biblical, we're going to talk about what a definition of submit means or being subject to, but really looking more at a biblical definition of, of submission, because I, I, I totally agree with you, Mark. It is foundational to everything. And today's topic, or next week's topic, with respect to civil government, kind of pokes at sometimes something we were really challenged with. Right now, unless you have, you, you know, you're getting inundated with political information right now. It's just, it's bombarding you, whether that's through email, whether it's through phone, um, recording phones, or whether even as, as of yesterday now, is that you have individuals that are walking the precincts, that are passing out information about various political candidates. Uh, our media, there isn't a commercial, you know, every single thing you watch, there is some type of commercial. Um, so the media is certainly jumping all over that. So I wanted to, this particular topic is a hot topic in many respects, but I think that what my objective is, is, is not to get into the debate of, is it Obama or is it Romney? <laughs> I'm not going to get into that debate, but what I'm going to do is what I talk about is really giving us really a, a biblical worldview to even civil government itself. Four years, what this next four years is about, how do you navigate that? You know, this 
this very situation was heroes on the throne, you know, being the Caesar, right? And Christians are being burned in this garden part. Well, perfect segue now into, because in order for me, because of that, is that what I, I started to think about was that I just didn't look at what was the context of what was happening here, okay? Yeah, you got Nero, and it's interesting is that really Nero's uh, reign actually carried into when Paul was writing Romans. So the fact is, is that in Romans 13 and in First Peter chapter 2, they're dealing with the same leader, which <laughs> both of them acutely aware of their roles as not only as believers in the response, but also aware of certainly the evil of the leadership at that particular time. But what to answer the question is about going to the first one is: Is it important? And I, I wanted to go all the way back because it is critically important. Because when we look at centuries that have gone by, is the relationship of civil government that we've seen unfold continuously and completely as God sovereignly intended, perfectly and purposefully. So, what I thought we would do is just for the sake of you know, we don't have to go back to each of these passages here. But Genesis chapter 15, and I, I have some of these that I can just read to you. But Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 to 16. This is obviously God's covenant with Abraham, but there's an interesting part of this passage, and it starts in verse 12. Moses records, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. Okay? So, first of all, there is this description that we see of what? What are they called? Right. They're called sojourners, strangers. Again, exactly the same thing that Peter is telling his readers that they're labeled. But I want to go back historically at one of the first places. And so we see Israel spent 400 years, according to this, as we know it was fulfilled perfectly under Egyptian rule. Okay? And you know, you know what, what, fill in the blanks, what happens? What, what was that rule like? You know. Okay? Sliding over a few, a few books to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Later, God gave the Jews say the covenant renewed in Moab in, in chapter 20, 28, uh, 28 verses 64 to 68. Then the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone. And among those nations you shall find no rest, you shall ha- you sh- nor sh- shall the sole of your foot have a resting place, but there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and anguish of soul. There again we see this stranger, this sojourner. Here God gave the Jews over to Gentile rule as the consequence for the rebellion against Him. Similar passages in Nehemiah as well as in Daniel. In Jeremiah 27, Jeremiah 27, verses 2 to 8. Thus says the Lord, 
Thus says the Lord to me, Make for yourselves bonds and yokes and put them on your neck and send them to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of Ammonites, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon. For the hand of the messengers who come to Jerusalem to the king Zedekiah, king of Judah, and command them to say to their masters, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth the man and the beast. So in Jeremiah chapter 27, prophet Isaiah spoke to the people of Israel, directing them to submit ultimately to Nebuchadnezzar and to Babylonian rule, to Babylon rule. And they were to serve the king of Babylon and to live. I'm going to go to the Daniel passage. I'm going to go to that in Daniel because it is so powerful when you get later on to the aspect of who put Nebuchadnezzar in office. It was God. Acts, um, actually, that should be, by the way, I apologize, it should be Acts 18. This is an interesting uh, section of Acts 18 that I thought would be interesting to uh, observe. And again, this is the aspect, some of the background of a civil government being an important aspect. Acts chapter 18, and it's verses 12 to 7, not Acts chapter 12. I have my hand out there. I apologize for that. Acts chapter 18, verses 12 to 17. Can someone read that? It's an interesting passage. But while Galileo was put out of Achaia, Jews were fallen and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, He was placed men to worship God and to serve the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if, if it were a matter of wrong, of vicious crime, or to Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words or names in your own law, look after it yourself. I'm unwilling to throw them away from the judgment seat, and they all took hold of the stock and the it was interesting about this passage, and it relates specifically that the Jews were persistently resisting Roman rule. And so, what was happening in this is that this situation is that when these unbelieving Jews tried to essentially, um, like, legally disown Christianity, this this Roman proconsul, this Galileo, he basically he rejects their claims, and it really sets legal precedent now at this point. And I want to use the word legal because from a governmental perspective. That gave Christianity the same rights and protection as Judaism. But the problem was that they had become increasingly like displeasing with the Jews. Romans were just like getting fed up with them. Okay? And I, I want you to think about that because Rome, when they started to get fed up with these Jews these, and Judaism, they started to lose sight of the distinction. In other words, they just viewed them as all being close related. It's like you, all you Christians. Okay? Now, there are some dangers in that. And that's, I want to take, you to take note of that. There's some dangers. And maybe you can give me some examples. That when Christians look a lot like everyone else, when it comes to a civil authority or responsibility situation, is that in many ways that you we get included in there. There's false accusations. Okay? Here, I'll give you one example. Let's say that you had uh, a protest and there were two groups that were protesting in an abortion clinic, outside an abortion clinic. One was just a 
uh, a local anti-abortionist group. The other was a pro-life group, a Christian group. Okay? Now, to the media, do you know the difference between the two? No. It's simply just, and I'm, I'm giving you this as a real-life example today, but now go back with me to Peter and his readers because he is saying that to many of those who we report to, that we're subject to in Rome, these leaders, they don't see any distinction. And so therefore, it is a greater call and a greater obligation us as believers. That we, going back to the verse, what is it? In verse 15, what did it say again? So that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. To what? To last week's verse, so that they, when they speak against you as evildoers, that, that by your good works they may observe and glorify God in the day of visitation. So you got to link those two, two verses again together. It is your conduct as believers. So Peter will inform us that we have the same obligation to obey our government as do unbelievers living in this nation. But the Christian has an even higher obligation than unbelievers. Okay. Already in chapter 2, Peter has laid this foundation for the instructions and how he gives concerning our conduct. Chapter, going back at 1 Peter, you go back all the way to chapter 5. By faith in Him as a living stone we become living stones built up in the dwelling place of God where He abides. God's own possession and demonstration of His nature. When you look at, at verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter is laying the foundations for his instructions and basically saying, now let me tell you a little bit again about your status, who you are. You are living stones. You're being built up into a dwelling place of God. You are God's possession and a demonstration of His nature. In the verses last week, in 11-12, Mark covered this, we are to abstain from fleshly lusts, which are foreign to our our calling and our destiny, conducting ourselves in a godly fashion so that while men may accuse us falsely for doing good in this life, they will give... Praise to God is at the core of what we saw in those verses last week. Now, submission is going to be a key we talked about. In 13 to 17, it's the first specific manifestation of godly conduct. And this, as Mark indicated, we're going to see submission in 18 to 25. Just kind of looking ahead, it's going to be submission of slaves to masters. In fact, they are evil masters. Looking forward, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, it's going to be about submission by wives, actually to unbelieving husbands. And then later in chapter 3, verse 7, submission by husbands. So this theme of submission, we're going to continue to bring back, and I'll touch more on that because it is, again, at the core of what we've been talking about. Now, I'd like to just probe the text a little bit more if we could. And just kind of go back to what we talked about last week and 
And the second question that I had listed for your discussion there is that Peter calls his readers in verse 11 aliens and strangers. What relationship does that have with these verses that we're looking at in verses 13 to 17? And actually, if you had a chance to start looking at 18 to 20, what is that relationship? No, no. Without question, first of all, those two words, they do complement each other, okay? This weather, and I'm just going to, using my, my version here, it's um, New King James, it's referring specifically to sojourners and pilgrims. Whether it's yours says that it's a, an alien, whether it's a stranger, they do complement each other in there. In other words, that in a, in a sense specifically, is that it's someone who does not live in, who comes to live in another country where he has become, you know, he has not necessarily become a citizen of that. I think about that. So therefore, as a result of that, do we have responsibility? And the answer is absolutely yes, we do. Um, for another time, but I, I love in Hebrews where it, it, you have the, um, in Hebrews 11, it talks about the, the various uh, the heroes of faith, and, and it goes through and it says men like, and it's like Abel and Enoch, Noah, Abraham, women like Sarah. And then in verse 13 of that chapter, he says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In other words... We who have received the promises also confess that we are the strangers. Really, a, truly a defining mark for a genuine Christian. Now, while we fix our eyes on ultimately our home, if, if, in other words, if we are a stranger or a resident alien, we'll call it, that does not mean that we abandon our responsibilities in the land in which we, uh, we live. Right. <laughs> We'll look at that as that's a very interesting passage in there in that submission. So the command that we see for submission, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every institution. The command is given to submit. And the word submit, to start off with our initial part of this, is a military term, meaning to arrange like in a military type of fashion under the, uh, the, under the commander, to put oneself in an attitude of submission. Now, in addition to be a matter, like a matter of authority, submission is also a matter of priority. I'd like you to turn to Ephesians 5.21, if you could. Ephesians 5.21. Someone read that. Okay, so in other words, what we see in this, there, we're to submit to those in authority, but also scriptures are clearly saying we should also submit to one another, right, to others, our peers. And the context of the teaching that we see on submission that Peter is calling us to, this is when you connect 
this word of submit, and then at the end of that passage where it says in verse 17, to honor all people, to all men, in 1 Peter 2.17. And so this, is, this honoring of all men is actually, this is this manifestation of the submission itself. And Peter is commanding the believers to submit to the king as the one that's in authority, which is the one in verse 13. Now, this similar term, this actual submit, Paul employed this similarly in the context of others in, the, in Philippians 2, verses 1 to 5. And I just happen to have it. Let me read that for you. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any infection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Three, verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard, here it is, one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Submit yourselves to every human institution, which was ultimately derived by God. What we want to look at now is in Romans 13, there's a parallel passage that we cannot ignore. And that is what we see in Romans 13. God has, as we've talked about, God has sovereignly ordained government official to hold positions of authority over us. Now, let me say that again. And think about this. That God has sovereignly ordained all government officials to hold positions of authority over us. And so therefore, as a result of that truth, we then are also to regard fellow believers as having a higher claim on us than really our own selfish desires. That's Paul's emphasis in that Philippians 2 verse. Therefore, again to the point that submission is also a matter of priority. Now this command is simple that, that Peter gives. He says, therefore submit yourselves to every... And I'm going to read a, a, an interesting version of this which is the New King James. It says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. And yours may see, I think the New, the New American Standard says institution, doesn't it? Okay. What, what are your thoughts on, on that word? What does that mean to you? Human institution. Any thoughts on that word? I feel like it's like all of the... It, 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 uh, the, one of the words is in the word, uh, uh, word study of this, it's interesting is, is that there's a... Um, literally, there's a, another translation of this, which is like uh, to human creation. It's this word creation, and every one of these types of uses that we see, it almost refers to this creation of God. Now, it is not necessarily to refer to like this um, this enterprise of man. It literally, within the context and how it's used, it's used as the work of God. In other words, the creation of God. So, to go back to the term, whether it's an ordinance of man, whether it's, an, whether it's a human institution, it's a, only a human institution in that men are nothing more than the human agents 
that exist under the sovereignty of God. Is so let's take a look at that. Let's go to Romans. Uh, take a look at Romans 13. Let's go there for a second. And I'll just camp there for a few verses here. It's just really interesting to me, and, and that was sort of my thoughts, that when you look at the timing of when Paul was writing this um, letter, Romans, as well as when First Peter was written, in a, and there was, it's not an exact overlay of that, but in just in looking at some of the timelines, then Nero was really in control at that point. So that was a common leadership which was they were aware of that style of leadership as well as aware of the problems and the evil within that leadership structure itself. But now, turn in Romans 13, if someone could just read uh, verses 1 through um, 4 to start with. Uh, read 5. Read 5, please. Okay, it's pretty clear. <laughs> it's pretty clear to define. So in other words, when we see this command for submission, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Rome. He makes a very, very clear direct statement in this passage that sounds obviously almost identical to what we see in, in 1 Peter. And the command is to civil obedience. And clearly, there are two specific reasons that we could point to as far as what, you know, what is the reason? The first one is that God is sovereign. Clearly, it indicates in that first verse there that God is the only sovereign. Period. There is no authority, absolutely no authority apart from Him. The second reason, those authorities who do exist have been established by God and His providence. No authorities, all of them exist based on His sovereign authority, His providence. Now, some have said that this only means that God establishes government in a sense of designment. Would you agree or not with that? This is one of those that, again, always go back to this foundational truth, which is, and so the answer would be is that I would disagree, because I would say is that clearly that he is completely sovereign over them in all aspects of it. Now, let's go to a couple, let's look at a couple examples. I think that I was going to give you some passages that we'll look at. Go to, let's go to John 19. Let's look at John 19. John, this is touching on what you were referring to here before Pilate. So let's go to John 19. So Jesus, Jesus in John 19, okay, remember he's, he's standing before Pilate. Pilate really having no idea that the creator of the universe is standing before him. <laughs> okay. Now, again, think about this. So what, is, what does Pilate say 
in verse 19. Uh, excuse me, verse 10. Then Pilate said to him, the creator of the universe, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Do you not know who I am? I'm Pontius Pilate. I'm a Roman. In fact, I have complete authority over every case in the land. I can put anyone to death. In his own words, he is saying, I'm, I'm sovereign in his own way. In fact, he says, I can release you or I can crucify you. And in verse 11, Jesus answers him. Jesus answered, you could have no power. You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. There the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. You think you have authority, Pilate? You have the authority of men and of your secondary authority people, that, you know, you guys that you have in your office there. But the only reason the only reason that you have this is because it exists because of the primary authority, which is God, who is holy, awesome, and sovereign. Yes, Pilate, you did authorize me to be crucified, but in doing so, you are operating under what? The sovereign hand of God. Think about that. The sovereign right over his creation goes back all the way I think of I want to read this one verse in, in uh, Proverbs 21 I'll just read it to you let's write this and jet down um, listed it up here Proverbs 21 verse 1 the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord it turns it, he turns it wherever he wishes what does that verse mean to you? The king's heart is like channels of water in the, in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. That's an important truth to have found as a foundation. In other words, as we look at uh, civil authorities and government and things that we are dealing with on a daily basis, what is yet before us even as a country and everything, keep these as foundational, I think it does shape, again, where, one, ultimately, I'm going to, I'm going to say later on, there is no fear for the believer. Here's the passage that uh, Mark and I were referring to. Go, go to Daniel chapter 4. We, we don't think that God's in control of this. Go to Daniel chapter 4. Verse 34. Someone read 34 and 35. You have to know what, what precedes these verses, don't you? And you kind of look back, starting in verse 28, all this came upon me, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is it not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power? and for the honor of my majesty. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The king has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men. And your dwelling 
dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. So when you read the preceding verses, and then you go back, and you see clearly that Nebuchadnezzar realized this after his encounter with the omnipotent Lord of all. God is sovereign. Not only is He sovereign over all of those in authority, He's also sovereign. He establishes everything according to His providence. Again, going back, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority, what Paul says, except from God and those who exist are established by God. Well, let's continue on here. To resist authority is to oppose the ordinance of God. To resist authority is to oppose the ordinance of God. Paul writes that, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Verse 2, Romans 13, verse 2. So what should the church do? What should the church do? If we, then, within this perspective, is that if we're trying to understand that as a church, how are we to engage then in this political environment that we live? I think the thing is just that we can political processes and not the So you view this as the, the thing as opposed to fellows that may only just be outside of the thing, all in the thing, for part of the normal. <laughs> I'm challenged, and I'm going to share. Lori um, would know this, but uh, I work for the government. Okay, and working for the government, Betty, so do you, by the way. <laughs> You're right with me. You're a secondary leader, and <laughs> then. But I'm going to tell you the thing, and it just that frustrates me is that because I work in a government that. The structure itself is that the political environment and the frustrations that that brings, it, it, I, I get angry, I get frustrated, honestly, to share with this because within that, and so therefore, I have to constantly keep myself in check because the political agenda, which is so prevalent within the structure that I'm a part of, this is a very appropriate lesson for me. And I'm going to go right back to these key verses in there because my tendency is that, you know, I want to take up arms against the government. You know, in other words, I'm going to fight. And so, is it God honoring? Am I honoring God in my workplace, for example? And how do I respond with civil authorities? Do I oppose them? Um, You know, I, I, I have had to go... Interesting, as I've had to go... And I've actually been in the legislature down in Illinois testifying against legislation, opposing them as part of my job. And I've tried to keep this thing balanced in this as far as what is my responsibility as a Christian even in that environment. So I share that because it's, 
it's the thing that uh, I struggle with the most in the work that I do is the politics, political environment. People are great to work with and enjoy the things. And also, to kind of put it into why this is an appropriate lesson for me to teach is that, um, you know, I'm a, indirectly I'm a tax collector. <laughs> because as part of my job is that I'm responsible for setting that levy, that tax levy, that ultimately we pay taxes uh, towards schools, for example. So I get those angry taxpayers that call me and I try to work with them, and I'm, this is part of my responsibility. But then there's, I've dug in and studied some passages about taxes. So I asked this question before we get into what should the church do? What should the believer do? And that was sort of this question that, we, that I threw out there for you to do, is what you think should be the church's role should be on civil matters as well as what do you think? What are some of the things that we we could we should be doing for those leaders or to those leaders that we approve of, as well as those that we don't approve of? As far as okay, let, let's answer it together. What should the church do? Okay, now now what's the question? Is the question that uh, is that something that we are we going to allow that in our church? Are we going to? I would say no. And, Right, but but here here is where the and I'm going to give you I'm going to build off of your example to make it even a, a tougher question to answer. Okay, for us, let's just say now. Okay, she's Lisa's question is about okay, it's um, a same-sex marriage situation. Okay, and let's say that that becomes a legal legal in Illinois, and let's say that also a part of that is that all churches, according to the law, say that. It, all, all churches must allow this if you are to keep your tax-exempt status. In other words, we as a church, we also have, we're subject to the government that we, we are tax-exempt. So therefore, the, because it's a, a state issue, they're saying that now, to make it more difficult more for a question, is that now you have to do this or you would lose your tax-exempt status. The answer is no. So what I'm just saying is that that's one of those. Uh, it, it's we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later next week. You know, it's the Acts four and five passages that talk about now. <laughs> you've you've taken me to the threshold. That that's the, that's the challenging part. And the thing is, is that what Peter is saying is that's that fine line. He is saying you have your call to a higher obligation. And part of that higher obligation is that you're right. No, we pay taxes. I think there's a. We're going to get into it. We don't have time today. But there's a there's a, there's a there's a principle here that we need to kind of figure out, and that is like when do we disobey? That based upon a principle like wrong, and therefore you know because you say wrong, we moral for the other side of it is is, is like. It's wrong, and you're asking me first. How do, when and how do we okay, get into it over the next? The, in fact, all these things. The, the question is submission, right? First, that is when you know how do you do that? It's humility, gentleness. Yeah, let, let me throw this out here, just because um, in this passage in Second Corinthians ten three, just to kind of help continue the discussion, they hold that thought. Um, in Second Corinthians ten three. 
in, in that passage, this is what it says, for, we, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And so that is an important verse, and I, I almost want to take a look at Ephesians 6.12. I can read that to you as well. So that one says, 6.12 says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Okay, so going back to this as far as that our weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. And so therefore... Mark, to your question, uh, as far as where do we go, is that we've got to be very careful that it, this is not a physical response. And in fact, when I resort to things of the flesh, my battle then is of the flesh, and it's human. And therefore, because we live in this, this physical world, more or less. So therefore, to me, that also represents some of the... the other representations of what the church does and doesn't do. But it says here that our weapons, there's a, uh, the second part of this, are divinely powerful for the direction of fortresses. This as second part of this is again, when we look at that part of the verse, we can't use human means. You cannot stoop to the level. And so this is where the opinions come in individually. I may not agree on things, but then do I take physical action? The, the, yeah, I'm just going to add, I mean, we, we live in an incredibly special situation in this country. No country has ever had something you know, And we do have the voting capabilities, and we have the ability to influence things in the future, for right, for good things. So we, we, we do have some responsibilities to be involved in that area. But, but when it's what were some of the other things that you listed as yeah. far as the other things that you could do? That was one of the questions. Well, what? Well, that brings up, you know, like, for example, with the health care law and the mandated uh, certain aspects of it that Christians don't agree. Um, and, you know, it's being mandated to companies and schools like Wheaton and so on. And, you know, and so we're, we're being forced to, uh, to do something that is against biblical teaching by law. Now, of course, we have this great way of uh, you know, suing, you know, to, uh, you know, correct things that are incorrect. So is it is it acceptable for Christians to sue as the government has set up this process, you know, or should we just lay down and say, okay, we'll offer all of these things that totally go against our grain, and if we don't do it, we're going to get sued uh, out of business, or I mean, uh, fined out of business. So where how what is our responsibility? Is it appropriate to sue even because that's what the government has set up and hope that we win the lawsuit or should we just leave it the way it is and just accept it? Um, 
So where in these scriptures would it say that, that well, this, to places that use it in the... No, this has nothing to do with, with taxes. This is mandating that you have to offer certain things to your employees, whether it is against your religious beliefs or not. It, well, like, for example, you know, Hobby Lobby does not feel that they can offer uh, this contraceptive pill that actually kills the fetus because you have had conception, but within a couple of days you can take this and you can kill the, you know, the, the, uh, the fetus if you want to use that term. And Hobby Lobby says we will not offer that to our employees. We, it's against our religious beliefs. So if they don't, they have to pay $1.3 million a day in a fines because that's the number of employees they have. So in effect, it will sue them out of business. Now they have a right by our government, which we're talking about here, to sue, uh, you know, to, you know, to, uh, to write that, so to speak. Of course, the government doesn't want <laughs> that to happen, even though they've left it open for us to have that uh, ability to sue. So, what what is our responsibilities in that? You know, can is it right for us to sue and hopefully have a change because the government has this ability to do that? Everybody sues nowadays, uh, or do they just accept that and you know and do what is not? Biblically correct in their own mind. Great question for the opening session for our next. Next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're we're definitely out of time. Oh, yeah. It. Um, I, I think we can probably parallel that with other types of circumstances. That um, in the way that we're, I'm going to probably try to lead that is is still based on some just core biblical examples that uh, and allow the others to go and to really subject it to how God is going to sovereignly work through. He, God is, is very much aware of that provision that you're referring to, I think, in every situation. So um, that's going to be the basis of how I'll introduce that, how we, we can talk about it still from there it still has to have a foundation of that. Yeah, Wheaton, Wheaton College also sued, and their suit was dropped by the judge. So now they don't have any recourse. So do they have to accept that uh, as, you know, as a, you know, based on what the Bible teaches us and just say, okay, well, we can't leave right our recourse. I mean, it's another. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we will uh, pick this up and... Um, Mark, I'm not 100% sure I'll get through everything next week. But I only have one more week after that. So Anyway. Hey, Herb, can I ask you to close us in prayer? Yeah. Let's pray. So we thank you for the topic. We pray for your spirit to bring into our hearts and really righteousness through this word. Thank you for Dave's uh, teaching for this uh, time word and help us to worship you in truth. Amen. Thank you.